Okay, so happy new year, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Age of Information. I'm joined by my co-host, Faraz. This is a particularly interesting episode because we don't have a guest and we're really shooting this on the fly. We haven't really prepared. That's not to say it won't be a great episode. So Faraz- Actually, uh, let me challenge you on that. I think we have two guests. I mean, from the host perspective, I could be the guest and you could be the host or vice versa. Maybe at any given time, we switch between host and guest. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, yeah, the, yeah, the audience will know who's the uh, host by who's asking the questions and then who's the guest by who's answering it. Um, I think it's based on the tenor of the voice, like the level of authority at any given point will determine the host. So does that make you the host just now? or, or Maybe for just that second, I was the host, but you could very well earn the host rights back by, you know, showing some confidence. So for us, I think the spot at which we'll start this episode is by me asking you, why did you agree to do this podcast? And really like, what is maybe the biggest lesson you've learned over the course of interviewing almost 20, 28, 29 guests? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I figured if I was going to help you start a podcast, I might as well get some credit for my hard work and I should be able to flex about something. I'm half joking, but I'm also half serious. But as far as like what I have unexpectedly learned from this, well, I I, I, gave, I came up with a startup idea because of this podcast. I came up with the this, this concept for Speak Up, and this was based off of lessons I learned from podcasting. So just to give a very, very quick summary, I noticed that we would be having very interesting conversations with our friends. And as soon as that blinking red light came on that said recording, people would become uncomfortable. There were a few of my friends who did not want to do a podcast, despite the fact that I have great conversations with them. So that led me to an idea related to saving conversations in a more natural way. Now, that idea didn't end up going anywhere. I coded it up for a brief period of time and then stopped working on it because I didn't find product market fit. But that was my first intention was the, the first like big benefit was it gave me a startup idea. That's that's actually uh, perfect because what I was gonna say actually I, so I'll just I'll just um, sort of preface what you said by saying I wrote a piece back in April for my newsletter about like you know what did I learn what have we learned so far from this podcast and I'm just gonna quote myself an excerpt uh, from this piece which I said. In college, I went to a few open mic nights in Los Angeles or LA. I only performed twice, but I quickly realized there are jokes that make me laugh and jokes that make other people laugh, and the trick is to say the latter. Mm. People people new to the uh, stage often say the former. It's just what I did, right? And in a similar trend, after we launched our podcast, I think that's what we learned. We were asking questions that we sort of wanted the answer to and sort of sort of not acknowledging that there's a broader audience who maybe doesn't have the same sort of knowledge base or, or, or as plugged in into this industry as we are. And I think once we realized that, I think we really sort of get, started getting on a roll and also the quality of our guests. I wouldn't say they greatly improved, but we started getting guests in very particular niches that had their own distribution and sort of played out in a way that I think really benefited our podcast. And I ended up learning a lot more. Well, in fact, I think the opposite effect was pretty prominent, whereby we would ask questions that we're not very sophisticated questions. So once we started, like we always did research where we'd Google it beforehand and try to learn about it. But I think one one big thing that we did was we actually asked people who are experts in this field, what do you want to know about this topic? We have this great person who's coming on. What should we ask them? And once we realized that, I think we we started making a better product as well. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. I, I, I explained that to uh, one of my friends and he was like, oh, so you're not really a you're not really running a podcast as much as you are just copying questions from somebody else and then asking it to somebody else. And you know what? That's we're what running. Makes, that's what makes we're running a podcast. a podcast by we're running a podcast by proxy. I guess exactly, exactly. Okay, you know people don't really want to hear about us um, talking about ourselves. So clearly not. Let, let me let me let me ask you your opinions on a couple of things. Okay. Uh, first, what is the most interesting technology trend or theme that played out this past year in 2021 that you found most interesting? 
Oh, interesting. So, you know, the obvious choice for this would probably be the rise of blockchain and NFTs. Not that blockchain hasn't been rising, but now it's just hit new stratospheric highs. But that is not my answer. My answer, as far as what I found to be the most profound and interesting of the past year, was the renaissance that has been happening in tools for thinking. So there are now, there's this guy named Andy Matushak, who was, I think he was the head of design for Khan Academy. He was on Apple's human uh, interface team. And uh, he has been writing for the past several years about how we aren't really using computers to expand our thinking in ways that we can. So he's got this very famous essay called Books Don't Work. And what he says is that if you read a great piece of nonfiction, a year later, you might remember like one or 2% of the book's actual content. And the reason we use books is because, you know, that was over the course of thousands of years, that was the best solution. But if we took a first principles approach, right? Like imagine that human beings were dropped onto this planet in a world where computers already existed, what would our evolution of knowledge transfer look like if that were the case? And he claims books absolutely would not be what we came up with. So like a first principles digital native approach, rather than starting with like pen and paper paper native that's made slightly more convenient through technology, would probably be something which makes heavy use of, of memory. So our memory degrades in predictable ways. So if you reinforce them at intervals through technology called spatial repetition software, you can remember things much more, much more cleanly. Another thing is that when we take notes, linear notes that are taken in a notebook don't link with each other in a very good way, but computers make it trivial to link to past notes that you've made. So these ideas that he's been spreading, I think have really, really caught fire in this past year. And there's been lots of things that have blown up, but the big ones are this class of software called personal man- personal knowledge management, PKM software. So the big ones are Rome, Obsidian, and Mem. And these are all just basically really, really clever note-taking tools that allow you to link previous ideas that you've had. And that has had the most personal impact on me. I think I've come up with ideas way faster because of these tools. But like to me, this is just the start. I think we're going to have a Cambrian evolution in tools for thinking better using computers because of the work of Andy and other people who are who are contributing. I think that's going to blow up over the next few years. Sure. You know, you're actually the one that introduced me to that space. And I've been using Rome, which is like one of these particular softwares that Faraz just explained. And I found it pre- pretty useful. You know, in my experience, I think it, there is somewhat of a learning curve because to use yeah. it correctly doesn't mean like the same type of Cornell notes or whatever you've, that you're used to taking, whether in the sciences or elsewhere, it really uh, requires you to approach it in a very new and like sophisticated way. So I'm wondering, you know, do you, do you think that it takes off because there's some fundamental change uh, that allows people to access it more easily and adopt it more easily? Or what, what do you think needs to change so that it, this Cambrian explosion actually occurs? Well, let me, let me shift back from guest to host and ask you a question. You said fairly, you were a little more uh, ambivalent about how much Rome has impacted you than I am. Why? No, so I think, yeah, exactly. So that goes, that goes back to what I'm saying, which is I use it for a few months. I took a bunch of notes and then I've since found that it's really hard for me to go and access previous notes. And then I mm-hmm. realized uh, that's because I've been taking, doing the note-taking completely wrong. Like I've been mm-hmm. doing it as if I would been, uh, as I've been doing it on Notion or Google Docs or, you know, my traditional note-taking software, but that's actually not the right approach, right? Andy and others have like written extensively about, you know, there's a very particular way you need to be writing these notes. So, I'm, you know, that, that is a learning curve right there. I'm wondering, you know, do you do you make that learning curve easier? Do you change the software itself a little bit? What do you do to get more people to come and adopt this? 
Yeah, yeah. When you put it like that, that actually clarifies things for me. So I think the reason my approach to it was different than yours was because I started with a very deep sort of like theoretical underpinning of this. I've been reading Andy's essays about this topic for a while. So I was like, okay, the first principles approach is to discard everything we know about traditional note-taking and focus on high retention, focus on linking previous ideas in clean ways, focus on making atomic notes, Whereas you don't have that underpinning. I just told you, hey, this is a great piece of technology. It'll help you come up with ideas faster. And so you were still using like the same approach that you've been trained over the past 20 years to do. And that's not to say that I have overcome that either. I still, in, in many ways, am thinking like, and taking notes as, I, as I've been trained to. But I'm like trying to think first principles, digital native. So maybe that's a huge, huge like barrier to overcome, which is like, you get what I'm saying? People mm-hmm. have been trained over 25 years. So the, the tool itself isn't sufficient. It's the style of thinking that will allow you to use these insanely new tools, right? Right, which is sort of why I'm skeptical of this idea that I love this, by the way. I love this uh, new approach to digital note-taking, which, I mean, it makes total sense to me sort of philosophically and like theoretically. But I'm, I am skeptical that it's going to sort of get mass adoption and mass appeal which I really think it should, because I think it'll just encourage people to think differently and like come up with new things. I'm just a little skeptical. But so that's the thing. I said the word Cambrian explosion, but that was not in reference to note-taking. That was in reference to tools for thinking. So I think note-taking is just one application of this, but there's a lot of stuff that hasn't even really occurred to us. I'll give you another example of a tool for thinking. There's software called Anki, which has been heavily used by medical students and law students for a long time, because essentially it's flashcards, but flashcards that are intelligent. So if you consistently get a card right, it won't show it to you. It'll show it to you for longer and longer intervals, which map the research we've done about like how human brains forget. So that is something which I'm I'm trying to apply to other areas. Like Mm -hmm. the idea is that imagine if, imagine if you could snap your fingers and you had permanent memory, like forgetting Mm -hmm. things was just not a problem for you. How would that change how we interact with the world? So I'm trying to create that through Anki, but there still are a lot of points of friction there. There's a lot of situations where like, I could potentially store this in Anki, but the act of like writing an Anki card, putting it in there, organizing it, knowing when to do it is really hard. So I think there are a lot of things like that where it's like, if we truly could use a human, like a computer as our second brain, Mm -hmm. how would that look? But there's like a lot of points of friction that need to be overcome first. So actually, you know, that actually, I do have an example of that exact thing happening to me because uh-huh. I was studying for the CPA for roughly like 18 months. The first nine months, and this is one particular software that I'd use to study for the CPA. And for the first nine months, I was using the software and it was just kind of difficult. And I didn't know I was like making any progress and I'd go take these tests. I passed, I passed like two, a fail one. And then in the following nine months, they upgraded the software. They, they sort of ran a new version of that software. And in the new version, they were using the same um, methodology that you're explaining for Anki. And so what happened was oh. a lot of my studying was just really doing uh, a lot of multiple choice questions. And so it would keep track of which multiple choice questions on what topics I was getting wrong mostly, and then start showing those to me more frequently as I got closer to the exam date. And I did end up passing this test. Now, I don't know if that's because of this particular metho- methodology, but I can totally see you know, them seeing that as being a great value add for their software. And then people also like experiencing that and then coming back to their software. Yeah. Um, Okay. Okay. That's pretty good. Hold on. I'm the host now. Basant, okay. what is your take for the most interesting technology of 2020? You know, it's, it's, it's maybe not the technology, but the theme of this technology, which is going direct to the consumer. We saw that happen with consumer sort of products, consumer software all throughout the 2010s, but really in 20, 
2020 and then 2021, we saw this crazy rapid rise in media going direct to people. And that's us doing this podcast where we go directly to our audience and, you know, either through Spotify or other, other platforms. But there's also this new trend on TikTok where you could be in the Midwest, you don't need an agent and you could blow up and you could have millions of subscribers and people that love your talent for whatever it is um, you're really good at. And you can build your own audience and uh, you control your audience and then you can sell them things and, you know, sort of extract value from your audience. I think that's incredible. I think that sort of removes this humongous barrier to entry that people all over the world typically faced, especially when it comes to like creative endeavors. Uh, And I see this trend really like playing out in 2022. So YouTube has been around for 10 years. Why is 2021? What changed? That's a good question. I've been thinking about that because if you go back to what was the name of that one consumer software that died out, which is like the eight second videos, but then Vine. Vine, right. So, you know, why why did Vine fail and why why has TikTok succeeded? I really think that it's in the execution. And so, yes, YouTube is, by the way, I'm not saying that YouTube has like failed in this regard. I think they've done really well. I think they had their most profitable year uh, in 2021. They made buttloads of money. A lot of people are on that platform and they are, they are the best consumer platform for these type of, in the space for paying out their creators, like a healthy sum. TikTok is like nowhere close to them. So, you know, YouTube is, YouTube is doing their thing and kudos to them. But I think what TikTok did really well is figure out the supply and demand constraints that Vine and like previous sort of versions of Vine that have come about had faced, like Periscope and, you know, these live streaming platforms. And they did that by sort of aggregating the biggest stars early on, which then attracted a really, really large audience. And the audience then uh, sort of encouraged upcoming creators to come to their platform and then really, you know, try their hand at making content. And I think also the thing about TikTok is, you know, at YouTube, I think up till maybe 2020, everybody expected, you know, a certain type of production quality, certain type of like quality in terms of like scripting and this and that with TikTok, that isn't really the case. You didn't, you didn't really have like these crazy big expectations. People came there for dances. Like you saw, you saw a few people just um, dancing in front of the camera and you're, you're totally like satisfied with that. And you, you, you continued like going on to the next TikTok or whatever. And so that has, you know, that's not, that's not true for the other ones. I felt like up, to, up till 2021 and now TikTok sort of changed the whole game and everybody's pretty happy with, you know, people just coming and doing their thing. You know what? I think TikTok is not as interesting as a case study because to me, that's not as paradigm shifting as Substack. Well, Substack's thesis hasn't really played out. We don't know yet for certain. So. Well, okay. Let's talk about that. I thought that's where you're going to go with this. Cause you are very, very, uh, I love Substack. No, I, you're very Substack. bullish on Substack and Substack is, has, has, like, okay, if you want to talk about bring, bring media direct to people, how much do journalists make a year? Like 40K, right? But Substack allows one journalist completely independent to make like 150K a year, as long as they are putting out content that people are interested in, right? So that really, really changes incentives and really changes marketplace, supply, demand, all that. So, you know, I love Substack. And the reason I'm like uh, a little hesitant to like go fully bullish on Substack on this podcast, because I think... And, you know, I'm kind of biased here. I think there'll be a much better decentralized version of Substack in the near future in Web3. Okay. And that will, and so Substack itself has quite a few problems, I think, but, you know, much better than, there, there are really no substitutes, right? So it is paradigm shifting in that it's brand new and it's like zero to one and it gives you this brand new platform to sell a newsletter. I, I like that idea. And the fact that, you know, you can pay creators for content you specifically want rather than paying New York Times and then maybe not getting content that you want. And, you know, just a couple of things here and a couple of things there. And you're like sort of subsidizing a bunch of content that you're, you're never going right. to consume anyway. Right, so I, right. I, I, I like that's that. That's cool. Wait, wait, hold on. Let's, 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 let's dig into that. I think that's a very, I never thought about it that way where Substack is sort of like Netflix to Netflix versus the cable provider. It's like unbundling this, like you have to pay for a hundred channels when you really just want one or two. 
Exactly. That's exactly right. I mean, I mean this, this isn't a new idea by me. I mean, um, a common criticism of the New York Times, and actually, I think this is a sentiment that's shared by the top journalists that bring the most readers and like subscribers to the platform. You know, like, you know, people used to really care about the byline. And so in mm-hmm. those days, uh, if you go back to the 90s and like the early 2000s, these top, top journalists, whether they're investigative uh, journalists or just, you know, political journalists or whatever, who are breaking big news, they would bring all the new subscribers, they bring all the eyes. And then they were effectively subsidizing the pieces of the New York Times that weren't getting any um, sort of readership. And it's sort of like college sports, right? Where, uh, you know, college football and college basketball bring in all the money and then they subsidize all the other sports uh, and all the scholarships and all the other expenses that go towards the other sports. The New York Times is sort of like that. And so that's what that's what Substack sort of unbundled unbundled and then now they're now they're all i think they will get into bundling where they'll start offering like multiple subscriptions for like one price i think they will get into doing that but you still have that optionality with substack even if they did do that but i do think the next evolution of this which is going to happen very quickly even though it took substack you know how how long has the newspaper industry been around 50 years or something i don't know um i think this evolution is going to happen in the next year i think we'll have a decentralized version of substack where you don't have this sort of conglomerate in the middle that takes i think it's they take like somewhere between um 10 and 20 percent of every subscription you're not going to have something like that you know the, the creator is going to get the full full sum and they're going to control their distribution entirely it's not going to be through this corporate sort of platform and so okay. i think that's that's really interesting okay so i had a very interesting conversation with a friend yesterday about web3 and he said that one convincing argument that he's heard against web3 is that so people say that what the big thing with web3 is it's it's decentralized so you aren't dependent on some company who controls this or that you could do that with web2 you could you could spin up your own server you could buy the hardware to do it you could host your own you know you could host your own server and and put it out but you didn't you could have but you didn't because you didn't really care that much so why is web3 why is slapping a new label on it going to going to make you do things that you clearly didn't care enough about to do in the past. That's a, that's a great question. And you know what? That's a great counter. And I've, I've heard that counter pretty often. And, and it, actually that counter applies to many, many facets. Including this one. It, including it applies this one. to this one. Including this one. And I'll give you my take on this. And I'll tell you why, why I think uh, you can do it in Web3 and you cannot do it in Web2. In Web2, the economics does not make sense. So the reason Substack was necessary was because they were sort of like this middleman that made the economic make sense. How did they do that? They got this venture capital funding. They paid writers. So on the supply side, they would straight up pay writers to come on their platform on contracts for like five years. And these are big time writers, right? They've got, they poached some of the biggest names from New York Times, Wall Street Journal, come on our platform, we'll pay you handsomely. And, uh, you know, we'll take a big chunk of your subscription for the first, you know, four or five years you're with us. And then after that, it's all yours. So that's a really smart uh, way. And, you know, this is a very classic VC model where you solve the supply side by, you know, just bankrolling it. And then you get uh, and then that incentivizes the audience to come in on the demand side. And then, okay, everybody's happy. And, you know, Uber's done well using this model. Airbnb's done well. And Substack will probably do well, do much better than they already are using this model. But you could not have done it decentralized in Web2 for this exact reason, which is the bankroll does not exist. But in Web3, you can make that, the economics make sense because the idea of tokenization changes everything. Um, and tokens do not exist in Web2. And so when you have tokenization in Web3, you're, you're creating a market cap where, and you're also creating this intermediary where people can come directly. And see, and now, now this behavioral shift that's occurred with Substack where people are like, okay, I will pay $7 a month for a newsletter. 
in addition to my New York Times subscription, that behavioral shift was so key. And that same, so once you're in that behavior mindset and people are totally okay with doing things like that, and you go to Web3 and the tokenization system works, it plays out perfectly. If you want, I can go into the tokenization system, but that is the sort of the key innovation in Web3 that does not exist in Web2 that allows for decentralization. Well, well, just to give the, the, the listeners a little look into how the sausage is made, before we started this episode, we said, we're not going to just do another episode about metaverse and Web3 like everyone else is. And look what <laughs> happened. <laughs> we got dragged down in the mud just like everyone else. <laughs> all, all roads lead to uh, <laughs> decentralization. All roads lead to decentralization. Okay, okay. Let's oh, let's 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 uh, let me let me go back to being host. Let me um, switch it around a little bit. Let me ask you this: okay. a little pessimistically, what was the worst technology theme that played out, or what do you think was sort of like should not have been given as you know? You, you can take that question as you as you see fit. But dude, um, I literally just said we should stop talking about Web three. <laughs> so you think, um, you think no, 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 dude. I think the idea of of like people being in vr at all times as being this like optimistic vision for the future is is horrible it's horrible and and like once you have really smart engineers and stuff working on this problem and buying in they'll convince people that it's good but it's not good it's it's bad it's terrible for the human race and our children and the way we interact with each other you know if you spend eight hours a day in vr i can see how that's probably bad for the earth and probably for like people generally but i also don't think we're anywhere close to being in that reality. I don't think VR and I don't think the hardware is anywhere close. I don't think, um, actually, I don't think fundamentally it even makes sense to me, this idea that people who live healthy, happy lives in the real world, in, in I should say in the first world, which is where we are like in America and uh, California, you know, the heart of technology are going to be like, well, you know, I'm pretty unhappy with uh, how things are playing out in Silicon Valley. So I want to just plug into this alternate universe. I don't, I don't, and I, I you know, let's assume the hardware does get there. Yeah. Do we really think that healthy you know, healthy body, happy people are going to spend lots of money in a virtual universe to spend all their time there. I just don't think that's... I mean, we already spend what, like, I think the average is like two hours a day on social media. So now instead of doing that on our phones, we're doing that with a headset strapped to us. I think that's even, I mean, there's an argument to be made that, that social media is just as bad, but I think it's a bit more dystopian to do that without even interacting with the outside world. Well, I, I, well, I counter that, you know, a lot of the time that we, that we do spend online today is for like work purposes. There's some utility to it. Like you are delivering some value, but not um, social media. Come on, man. Not social media, which is okay. Yeah. People, which is already hours. consuming a massive amounts of our time. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Watch my take end up, you know, <laughs> aging really badly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I mean, how long can somebody play a game for? And how many people are there that, that are willing oh, to play man. some game game for like You're gonna ask, hours? You want to ask me how long someone can play a game for, bro? I'm, I think uh, it's a small group of people, man. I think proportionally it's a small group of people. I mean, how many people are going to plug in for eight hours? I, dude, I have been known to do that on uh, many occasions. That's why I, I, I like do not let myself play video games because I like them too much. I think there's a subset of people who like using Rome and then will also play eight hours a day. And that's the market that Mark Zuckerberg is trying to reach. <laughs> yeah. People who want advanced tools for thinking while also being victims to their basest urges. Perfect. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So let's, let's go into some. So, okay. So I want to ask you a question. What do you think, like, what did you learn about in 2021 that you think is a hidden gem? Tech or fine. Well, we can do both. I, I have I have one that I think I mean again I'm, this isn't this isn't so much as Web three as it is uh, decentralized finance. Oh okay uh, great. And I'm going to go back to that and I will give you I'll give my quickest pitch, which is 
and I'll, you know, I'll just disclaim that, you know, I'm not a huge fan of NFTs by any means. I'm not in that space at all. And I actually urge a lot of my friends to stay away from NFTs, at least for the time being until, you know, it matures and becomes something. What about your, but what about your pseudonymous alter ego? That isn't, that isn't, I mean, that is an NFT. That isn't technically an NFT and, but also serves a much broader purpose for the purposes of DeFi, which is what I was going to say something about. So on the topic of DeFi, I'll just say that I think roughly 800 million people have access to the equity markets. That is to say like stocks and like bonds and options and all that, that comes with that. And roughly 2.8 billion or 3 billion people now have smartphones, meaning they have access to DeFi. And so that is the real potential of DeFi, which is a combination of finance and technology. It is a finance on a decentralized platform that is permissionless, meaning nobody needs to give you permission to access it. It is a bankless, meaning you do not need a bank to access it, which is the case with equity markets. Um, and it is completely decentralized. So there's no authority that oversees you know, transactions coming in and out. Of course, the pitfalls are that there are a lot of fraud. There's a lot of sort of bad actors doing many, many bad things. And you know that, that that's the case as it is right now. But I think we're going to evolve to a point where we will put up the guardrails and put up uh, a lot of safety features. And a lot of these things are going to be created that will prevent the majority of bad actors from con- continuing to act the way they are. And when we get there, you know, we're talking about billions of people who have pre- previously not even been able to make an ROI that um, sort of meets inflation. They haven't even been able to do that. So people lose money every year because they don't have access to uh, a savings account, which DeFi will provide them. And um, I think that's going to be like one of those like uh, world changing moments. And I really, really believe and this is maybe my hottest take is sort of the manifest destiny of our current generation where people, you know, if you go, go back at 300 years ago, uh, you know, you would have tried to come to the West as part of manifest destiny. And, you know, if you're born 300 years from now, you probably go try and go to space and discover, you know, hopefully we're multiplanetary and you're going to go and see other planets outside of our solar system. But right now, the only discovery that's available to us that we're still discovering and will continue to discover is Web3 and specifically DeFi. And so in that way, um, it's sort of our calling, in my opinion, and specifically my calling. And uh, so that's what I hope to you know, devote the rest of my life to. And so it's a combination of um, tech and finance to answer your question. So it's interesting that you use the word manifest destiny, which today is almost universally considered an excuse for rich people to exploit poor people and steal their land. Explain that to me. Well, they said like, hey, it's noble, like the settlers, they said it's noble for us to go west and all this land which is owned by the Native Americans. We'll take it now. It's our destiny to civilize this land and to spread you know, Western values. That is, that, that is true. I, you know, that's facts. That's facts. But, you know, in this particular case, there's nobody to be colonized. It's entirely we're, all we're doing is providing value. I'm not saying this is, this is, by the way, DeFi is not a zero-sum game. Like in the case of, yeah, you're right. In the case of, you know, we had to come and take the land from the Native Americans. You're taking something away from somebody and you're giving it to somebody else. That's a zero-sum game. In the case of DeFi, we are going to generate value for both sides. The people that generate the value, they themselves will extract some of that value. But then the people on the other side are also going to get, for the first time in their life, some sort of ROI that at least meets inflation in their country, which, which okay. cannot be said otherwise. You know, it's like- so, so, so first principles- First principles would say that if you only have people putting money in, then it's a zero sum game. But it seems like what you're claiming is that there is money that's being that's sitting that could be deployed for investment to create more GDP and more value in the world. And DeFi will help will help, you know, create those those wires. Is that what you're saying? Roughly. That's roughly what I'm saying. Basically, you know, if you look at the third world, right, emerging countries, I should say, they they have some sort of, you know, people in that country have certain income they make. So let's say like you start off with $4 a day, which is, you know, roughly what's that's, that's probably roughly true for Bangladesh where they make $4 a day. And that's going to go towards, 
you know, like the necessities, housing, food, et cetera. But then in an emerging economy, what you'll often see is that people who are making $4, $4 a day after 10 years will be making like $6 a day or, you know, sub- substantially more like $8 a day, $10 a day. And then their kids will probably be college educated, which is often the case. And then they will themselves will go on to make um, $20 a day. Now, when you're making $20 a day, all your necessities are sort of satisfied with the $10. So let's just say like roughly $10. The remaining $10 you now have the option to put towards extracurriculars or vices, which is often the case, like, you know, alcohol, et cetera, or uh, you can put aside for savings. But the current issue is these people do not have access to put money aside for savings, which is what DeFi is going to provide. They're going to, you know, we're going to, or I should say we, but really the entire DeFi ecosystem is going to provide a platform where people can put that extra $10 away and then earn three, four, 4% risk-free. That's pretty great. That's, that's not offered right now. And I think that's like such a fundamental, like that's such a fundamental shift that's going to affect the quality of life in, in so many ways we can't even predict. And so I think that's the real value. So you think this is the most important problem that like you're thinking about right now? Like this is top of your mind? At least for me, that's the top of mind because my skill set and like what I've spent my life up till now doing fits pretty well with this. Mm. And I can sort of empathize with you know, what we're trying to do. I myself am from India. So I, you know, I've seen firsthand, like, you know, the, the potential that's out there. And so I just feel like a lot of things, whether it's uh purely academic or professional, but also personal, just line up for me in this particular mm. side of things. Okay. Um, but let me throw that question back at you. The same question. What's top of mind for me? What's type of, yeah, top of mind for you going into uh, top, top of mind. Yeah. Top of mind for me is tools for thinking tools that allow us to like really use computers and modern technology to their full potential. Because yeah, like I said, I think most of, most of our interaction with computers are paper, paper and pencil native, and they've been made slightly more convenient through a computer. But like a first principles digital native approach to these problems, I think would be paradigm shifting and would, again, like, so I think we, we ultimately both have the same goal. We think that like through technology, you can increase human productivity. You can make human beings produce more in the world and thus have more for everyone to go around. So your approach is sort of like a financial perspective approach, which is like, how do you have investment, which is sitting and doing nothing and using that to, as a deployment of capital in order to produce more things. And mine is like, how do you, avoid wastage of thought and waste it and waste of, of knowledge and all these things and use them to actually accumulate into new insight. A hundred, as they say, a hundred, hundred percent. I agree with you. Okay. (laughs) But I will give you another hidden gem. I will tell you another hidden gem that I have been thinking about. I think uh, GPT three is now entering maturity. So I'm sure everyone has heard about that. If you're listening to our podcast, you heard about, you know, the AI that can, that can generate articles that seem like they're written by a human that could arguably pass the Turing test. But that was all sort of parlor tricks like a year ago. Maybe, yeah, maybe even more recently than that. But I saw two things on OpenAI's website, which made me think, my God, we are now in the future. So the first is I saw an application of GPT-3 that was used for making SQL queries. So you write the SQL query in plain text. Right. So if you don't know what SQL is, it's the database language, which you have to learn how like you have to like take a class or read a tutorial or whatever in order to look up some information on your database. So if you're like, how many sales did we do in Texas from this quarter to this quarter on this product line? You need to write a SQL query to do that, which is very, very non-trivial. That would absolutely not be considered no code. So with GBT3, you just write a sentence. The sentence which I described to you, you literally put that in and GBT3 will convert that into a SQL query and it will it will give you that information. To me, that seems like so maybe unsexy of an application of GBT3, but incredibly, incredibly significant. Because I've got this philosophy where it's like, 
if something takes 10 clicks and you reduce it to one click, that doesn't make it 10 times more convenient. That makes it a thousand times more convenient because now 100 times as many people are capable of doing it. And I think that's what GPT-3 is doing with many applications. SQL is just the most obvious. Okay, so you sound uh, fairly optimistic about AI. I am really fearful. I don't know if I am really fearful. Like I have uh, reason to be fearful, I guess. Well, don't put words in my mouth. I'm, I'm not definitely you're not, optimistic, you're not optimistic about AI. Okay, okay, okay. okay, 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 okay. I'm just okay, okay. Let me go back. Let me back. Let me ask okay. you. Let me ask you a series of questions because now I'm really am curious about AI and um, in my recent reading, I've like come up with more questions. So uh, let me ask you this. You know, give me a sense of, you know, people are always like AI is going to, you know, disrupt jobs and it's going to uh, remove all sorts of jobs. And so they'll say okay. like, it's going to remove call center jobs. Okay, that makes sense to me. I can see, I can yeah. see how that's going to get sort of automated by AI. But give, give me the next level. Give me like, what sort of job in five years uh, would you expect to be automated away? Like, give me, give me the, the most sophisticated job you think can be automated away in five years by AI. So here's the problem. Any answer I give you, would be a mapping from pencil and paper, physical world native into digital. But I can't, cause like, that's what I have, you know, 28 years of life experience in. So I can't actually say if we truly take a digital native approach, what, what would we conceive of? And I would argue that nobody can. Okay. So yeah, I guess like every, my argument is that everything that we're thinking of today that we think would be disrupted by AI is like, oh, this is how we do it in a world where we don't have this tool. But there are, there are like new jobs and new things that we can produce that we can't even conceive of because we've just been thinking sure. and like, we're not, we're not really thinking natively to that tool. You know what I mean? Okay. 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 Fine. That's, that's totally fair. That's totally fair. Like we don't know what we don't know. And so there's going to be a bunch of things that may or may not happen. That's going to totally change the, the sort of the framework of thinking of these things. Okay. That's fair. Let me ask you this sort of meta, meta high level, do you think AI poses an existential threat to humans? Oh man. Oh man. This is a whole, this is a whole can of worms. Okay. <laughs> okay. How do I put this? Okay. So there are like, I don't know if we, okay. I don't know if we want to cover this topic in the podcast, but I'll, 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 I'll just give you an answer to give you an answer. So there are kind of two camps of people. There are AI researchers who are actually studying, like who are actually studying AI, um, and by that, I mean, they're studying convex optimization or they're studying like new neural net machine learning models. They're writing papers about it. They're publishing, they're getting peer reviewed. And those people are not saying, so that, that's like one camp of people. And then there's another camp of people who are like AI theorists. And they believe in the concept of the singularity and friendly and like the friendly AI and Newcomb's paradox and Rocco's basilisk and all this stuff, where essentially they say that like an AI of sufficient power will be able to control human beings by simulating them and understanding exactly how they'll think. And this AI will essentially be able to manipulate us into doing anything and it will take over the world. And this is an existential threat. So when you talk about like, is AI an existential threat? This is often the, this is like generally the camp that, that you're referring to. So mm. I fall into the camp of the researchers, the people who are like actually in the field, like doing research and being peer reviewed and publishing this. I mean, this other thing is like so speculative and sci-fi that I don't even, yeah. You know, but you know, I've seen a lot of high, high profile people show up on the other side of it. The non-researcher side you just described. Um, sure. So yeah, that's what, Elon that's Musk, makes yeah. Elon Musk is part of that group. And arguably he has the most AI forward tech company out there, right? Okay. So this also goes to another, another question. So like, what does the AI even mean? 
are we referring to machine learning? Are we referring to just like pretty standard statistical models, like re like regressions? I've seen people, I've like literally seen people pitch companies that said that they were AI because they used if statements. Like that's a that's almost that's not like kind of like a parody of it to some extent. But there are people who just like will slap AI label and now that's AI. So mm. okay, as far as like is Tesla um, an AI forward company? Well, they're doing very interesting things with neural nets and computer vision. So they're they're doing some interesting work there. But yeah, I think I think what the what the sort of like the the people who are worried about existential threat are thinking of like an AI that is essentially like a human brain, but like hundreds of thousands. Of okay, so basically, basically, if we want to really get into it, these people are just reinventing religion. They're just saying like AI is the new god, and you should fear it. And if you do things that displeases the AI, it will come and punish you. So, yeah, I I don't know. To me, that just seems like, if not okay. a conscious grift, a grift to some extent. Sure. We you know what we our next episode needs to be like um, two AI folks who fall on separate sides of that line, like on opposite sides of that line, and then we okay. sort of grill them on different things and then see what they think. Okay. Yeah. So to me, the hottest, the hottest topics were tools for thinking and then, well, okay, well, let's, let's dig, dig a little deeper into this. One thing which you've brought up several times throughout the podcast is the concept of no code. And I will say that my character arc has maybe been completed because I was very uh, bearish on it. And now I'm bullish that so you have won me over to the side of no code. What, what convinced you? Well, it was GPT-3. It was the fact that like GBT3 isn't replacing coders, but it is making things way simpler that didn't have to be that complicated. And there was just like a major gate that was like, you have to have someone who knows SQL in order to make these queries, even like, okay, so you can have like an operations department that really needs this information. And they might have to employ someone who's just a SQL coder to do this. And that's just completely unnecessary labor. Like this person says, I want you to do this. And then the SQL coder translates that into code and if GPT if GPT three can straight up do that, that's crazy. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of opportunities like that in the space of no code. I think. I, I totally agree, and I I also say that I'm working on a uh, piece of software right now where I'm trying to build a trade blotter, which is sort of a how do I explain this? It's like it's like this 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 sort of program that keeps track of all trades that you do. So in my case, you know, I'm making a lot of trades in in DeFi, and it gets very complicated as far as basis tracking and you know making sure that I have my gains correctly for tax purposes, and you know all, all, all this sort of record keeping is just kind of very difficult, and so. My trade blotter, I'm doing entirely with no code. And I don't think that would have been possible without like no code tools. And I'm using a combination of like this, this uh, software called bubble.io and also Excel. Uh, Excel, right. I, I said before, is, is a, really one of the greatest no code tools out there. So, right. um, so that's, yeah, yeah. Anyway, anyway, yeah. Well, I, 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 yeah. I would say, I would say that I, I thought the word no code was a grift, but now I think it's a noble thing. I mean, sure, Excel, okay, we can call that no code, but everyone who's coming in and saying like, hey, you can build this and that and that with no code for the most part, I thought it was like just very cookie cutter and not actually producing things that are really that substantial. But now that these are becoming powerful and making you really, really do truly innovative things like making SQL queries of a database in a way that anyone can do it. That is a really, really, you know, expanding the human race, expanding the GDP that we're producing mm -hmm. type application. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 100%. I also agree with that. So why don't we just wrap things up here by asking and answering, what is your favorite app of 2021? Do you want to go first? 
No, you go first. I don't no, no, you go. I, I went first last time. I answered something like this. You, you go this time. Really? I don't yeah. remember that. When, when the Cisco guy asked us, and then I went first. And then oh, okay, asked. okay, okay. Fair enough. It's your, your turn. Your turn. Yeah. I mean, I have answers to this, which are like Anki and Rome, but I already, I already talked about those. So let me, let me. Uh, what else can I? Think? Okay, I'll say something while you, while okay. you uh, think of that. So okay, I'm okay. gonna go back. Listen, I'm gonna go back to the Web three DeFi thing, but I'm not gonna say any particular like decentralized application of that. Instead, I'm gonna say. The mo- maybe the, the most wonderful app that I have used in this entire space is this thing called MetaMask, which is this wallet that everybody needs to access DeFi applications. Like everybody needs to go and create one. And so, you know, anybody that's listening, that's interested in the space, the barrier to entry is literally create, creating this wallet. And so MetaMask is this wallet where you can store your different currencies, your tokens, all these different, you know, sort of indicators of you participating in these different apps. And so it's very, it's a very necessary piece of infrastructure for the entire space. So in that way, it's very important. But I think what it really, really solved and Web2 has not solved is single sign-on. Because, in, you know, single sign-on is this thing that everybody talks about. It, it's a big issue that you know big enterprises and like even educational institutions have where you want to make it really easy for you people inside your ecosystem to be able to access any one of the applications within your ecosystem really easily metamask solved that where you can go to any single mm. uh, dap on the ethereum blockchain and with metamask with two clicks you can be you know you can access that app you know no need to, you know of course you don't remember need to remember your password but it's the same single sign on for every single dap it's universal every single one of them offers metamask compatibility and i think that's so wonderful and it's so easy to use and it's so intuitive and i think it's really also one of the great things that made nfts possible this year because if you didn't have single sign on it would have just been such a pain in the ass to like mint these nfts on chain like you know Explaining that to somebody is just going to take too long, but explaining to them that, oh, you have to create this wallet, like basically this account online, which is a Chrome extension, and then you just go and do it is far easier and uh, far more sort of intuitive for the average user. And I think um, just wonderful, just wonderful. just amazing. Okay. I didn't listen to anything you said because I was trying to think of my answer, but I thought of my answer. So my answer is MetaMask. I think that Web2 has not had solid single sign-on solutions for crypto and metaverse and NFTs, but MetaMask, I mean, you know. Yeah. Next level stuff, man. You just said MetaMask? I said MetaMask, yeah. That's pretty good. I like that one. Okay, cool. Yeah. No, but what what, what do you think? Oh, dude. Come uh, on, you came up up with something. Come on. (laughs) Okay, I could give a few answers for texts that I've used that have been like... Okay, so I used... um, I didn't expect to like visual to like visual studio code as much as I did. So that's actually, Ooh, uh, I like that. That's actually like built. It. It's an, it's a IDE. It's a development environment built by Microsoft. Yep. And I use, so I, I coded up my app and spe- my app speak up. I coded that in react native. So first I was using Xcode, which is Apple's IDE. And it's so bad. It's so bad. It's got like all these issues. It constantly crashes. It doesn't have great sh- keyboard shortcuts. You can't like rename things without a bunch of clicks. It's just a real, real pain. So Visual Studio Code, it's just a very nice experience. It's got uh, solid themes. It's got nice add-ons. It's got nice linters. It's got all this great stuff on it. So the idea that I would be using like in a Microsoft IDE on my Mac, uh, I, I don't know. I think that's pretty surprising. And the fact that I liked it that much. Yes. Actually, can I just say two things? And the second thing is actually a question for you. Okay. First is I think... Microsoft has been really great about making all their different applications interoperable with each other. So, you know, okay. when I'm working on my resume on my Microsoft Word, right, LinkedIn pops up on the site and they offer help on like different themes uh, or different things and different structures. Is uh, on a Mac? Me- this is on a Mac. Oh, wow. And they'll, you know, they'll make my resume better. And, and the other day I was actually writing some code, I think on Visual Studio and GitHub pops up and they'll offer me like, 
you know, let, let me take my code directly to GitHub. I don't know if you've seen that with Visual Studio Code. So I think they've just done this really great thing where they're so focused on the developer or like their end user, like they're, they're, they're so just so, so focused that they've made that entire experience great. And this other, so my second thing I wanted to ask you, there's this common criticism that Apple cares far, far more about the average consumer. So that is to say the person that, you know, uses the iPhone or the person that uses the Mac, but Microsoft on the other hand, cares far, far more about the developer and servicing developers. Would you say that's like ideologically true in your experience or as a developer yourself? Like, what do, what do you think of that shift? And what do, what do you think of that? I mean, I wouldn't say it in as simple terms, but I would say that like the level of polish that Apple puts into their products are much higher for things that reach the end user than things that are done for the developer side. But some things that they do are actually kind of good, which might seem like they're against developers, but, and, and benefit. So just as, as an example, Apple is very, very demanding about the visual look of things. So they want a consistent look across all iPhone apps and they put in a ton of little things so that you'll do that in Xcode. So some people might not like that, but I think it's a really good thing. I think that the fact that it takes design out of your hands for some power users that they might be like, oh, that's whack. I wish I could, you know, I wish I had more control over my fonts, but no, nah, it actually makes things a lot better. If, if I was coding speak up in, uh, in um, like, through Swift instead of React Native, I think it actually would have saved me a lot of time and I would have been able to make, I would have had to make, make fewer decisions in order to make like a visually good good app. But yeah, I mean, I will say that Xcode is like a joke. It's like so bad. Everyone thinks that Xcode sucks. So that is kind of baffling to me why Apple puts that out. Like, have they no shame? However, uh, and, and conversely- no shame? How, I mean, come on, man. Like you, you guys are like a trillion dollar company and you're putting out this garbage. Yeah, you know what? I changed my mind. You are right. Yeah, I will, I will, uh, I will buy your thesis. Yeah, Microsoft is dope. Yo, 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 all praise to uh, Satya Nadella. I know. For, what a uh, what an arc. Because like I remember when Microsoft was like the most closed source, like most disrespected, developers hated it type thing. And then they were run by this guy who wasn't even a, a tech guy. You got a sales guy running the company and driving it into the ground. So uh I know what a what a great what a I mean, great Tim, story. Tim Cook is in a Tim Cook isn't a tech guy. I think Tim Cook is. Oh, he's a, he's a logistics. He's a logistics guy. Well, let's not. We shouldn't compare Tim. I think Tim Cook is the CEO. Let's not compare him to Balmer. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Okay. Yes, yeah, sir. Did you have Did you have any other pieces of tech you want to do shout out or? Oh, bro, you're you're. Have I not given you enough? I've already laid out like four things this episode. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let me. Okay. Let me ask you this final question. With the handcuff final. of no web Web three, and NFT, which we didn't follow. That's fair. No, that's fine. No, that's fine. Listen, okay. Final, final question for you. Purely okay. financial, purely financial. Okay. If you okay. had to put your money into something, by the way, this is not investment advice. This is not financial advice. Okay. We're just two guys that don't know much that are talking about things they may or may not know about. Um, yeah. What asset would you put, if you had a hundred thousand dollars, what asset are you putting your money into on January 1st, 2022 to get I'd the most in, return over the course of the year? I'd put it into an ETF. Perfect. That's the, that's a Farazism. That's a Farazism, bro. <laughs> which etf which tell us tell us we're, all, we're on the edge of our seat which etf are we talking about well i would actually put it into betterment which would decide for me because i don't have i have skepticism over my decision ability to make to make the optimal choice you're going to outsource you're going to outsource this question to betterment correct <laughs> okay all right well next up we'll try and get betterment which is a robo advisor is that right yeah, basically. Yeah, okay, it we'll like get, balances we'll... like international bonds versus national bonds, international emerging whatever. 
I uh, okay. yeah okay. yeah okay yeah. we'll get we'll get, not, we'll get we'll get the robo advisor as our next guest and see, see yeah what I think. you should see not advise you should not ask a tech guy to give you advice on where to put your money because it's gonna be too speculative what's your answer to this question uh, my answer is 50k split up between bitcoin ethereum and solana and the other 50k in the u.s dollar wow i don't even know what to say about that. i don't even know how to respond <laughs> yeah man that's that's my answer it's a barbell. It's a barbell approach where you hedge your risks and see what's up. It's basically it's a currency play if you think about it. It's uh, all currency. They're all currencies technically. Oh, clever. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Let's wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. So anyway, yeah. You know, on my end, I just want to say everybody that's listened to the episode or our show so far, thank you for listening. If you subscribed, a double thank you. And we've enjoyed making it uh, so far this year. And you know, maybe we'll try and continue doing that in 2022. But we will. Um, we will. Yeah, we will. We will. Yeah. Anyway, so happy new year. And uh, that's my bit for us. Okay. Yeah. I'll just say if anyone is listening to this, what an honor it's been to bring you guys content that we thought was interesting over the past year. And if you guys have any advice on how we can make things better, what you like to hear more from, then you can hit us up on Twitter. I am at FZ from Cupertino. You can find me at next Vasant, and you can also find my a wonderful writing at nextbite.substack.com. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to second that because, you know, he's been writing for a while and you'll notice that I have never plugged it on a podcast before. <laughs> and that was for a good reason. But now I think he's earned his last couple articles I have read and I've smiled and I have sincerely enjoyed them. So you guys should check it out. Guys, it gets better. It gets, start, start it's been getting better. It yeah, starts yeah. up honestly, pretty bad, pretty, pretty bottom <laughs> of the barrel stuff. It's like a reverse game of Thrones, right? Oh, like, oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. So it's like most yeah, shows. Yeah, it starts then. out so season like mo- eight. So it's like most shows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like most shows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they start off kind of wet, like, what are you what are you watching or what are you reading? And then um, by the end, you're like. Yeah, like, what the hell is this? Like, who is this idiot who thought he should make a Substack article? And then you're like, oh, okay. You oh, know? and by by the end, you'll be creating your own Substack because of uh, mimetic theory, which I actually was hoping to bring up. But we're never going to do an episode on this. You don't like you don't like that. You don't like you don't believe. No, nah, dude, 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 nah, dude. I just proved it right now. Come on, man. This is, a, this is supposed, <laughs> to te- supposed to be a technology. It's supposed to be a technology, science, and finance podcast. And here no, we're just like no, busting no, no, out no, no. some Wikipedia uh, articles no. you've read. No, I don't even understand about sociology. I've read, read many books and many words about this topic. Many, many words, thousands of words, hundreds of thousands of words. And mimetic theory is legit, man. I really, I really, once you, once you really oh, understand I'm mimetic glad. theory, you see it everywhere. You see it everywhere. And I just proved it because you said three words and I said it again. I'm um, glad you're going to cut this part of the podcast. Maybe. Maybe. All right. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you for listening. And we will see you the next time we put out one of these episodes. Okay.